for the past several decades, and especially since the Six-Day War in 1967, the centerpiece of U.S. Middle Eastern policy has been its relationship with Israel. The combination of unwavering support for Israel and the related effort to spread democracy throughout the region has inflamed Arab and Islamic opinion and jeopardized not only U.S. security, but that of much of the rest of the world. The situation has no equal in American political history. Why has the U.S. been willing to set aside its own security and that of many of its allies in order to advance the interests of another state? One might assume that the bond between the two countries was based on shared strategic interests or compelling moral narratives, but neither explanation can account for the remarkable level of material and diplomatic support that the U.S. provides. Now, that is the very first paragraph of the article initially an article published eventually we'll get into this by the London review of books by John Mearsheimer and Stephen Waltz, uh, the Israel lobby. Now the subject of today's episode will be this article as well as the book and the criticism that it created, uh, or rather the whining hysteria of, uh, Jews and their lackeys. Now, at the moment, it is just Hans and I on the program because, as you may be aware, we've had some difficulties with recording as of lately. In fact, in the previous episode, I was unfortunately reduced to typing some questions to our guest, James LaFont. And we have a temporary solution. I'm actually right now in like a tiny corner of a, a library in a nearby town. <laughs> so... <laughs> I have a kind of keep my voice down as I talk about the general Jewish threat. So I hope I'm coming through all right. How are you doing, Hans? I'm doing all right, man. I'm uh, enjoying life. Got uh, got offered a a nice big pay raise at work today, so uh, things can't be too bad. That's great, dude. You know how you could make much more money, though. How can I make much more money? Shelling for Israel. Yes, shelling for Israel. <laughs> I mean, it's not a career path I would recommend to any of our listeners because, you know, assuming that history, future history takes the course that we all hope it will, uh, those of you who choose that career path will probably find yourself on the short end of a long rope or the long end of a short rope. I forget how that goes, but uh, it's maybe not going to actually be the best job security in the future, despite how profitable it has been for the past 40 years or so. When did it start getting profitable? The 70s. Yeah. The 1970s was really when it, it picked up. That's not to say, and this is something that again, I'm sure we'll get into once our co-hosts join us, but it's not to say that obviously you don't have, didn't have significant Jewish power presence in America prior to what they would call the lobby, which is not simply APAC, but you know, general organized efforts at Jewish ethnic lobby, Zionist ethnic lobby, uh, to influence American foreign policy in particular. Uh, obviously, America fought a war on behalf of international Jewish money power against Europe, and uh, that is a story that is all too familiar. In many ways, the, the lobby is. I mean, this is a. I will have to save some of this, but we're we're talking only about one tentacle of the 
proverbial Jewish octopus strangling the world. So it's still interesting because these guys are, they were, you know, well-established academics and they do deserve credit. I mean, it did, despite much of it being somewhat familiar territory and not all too provocative, uh, when you really look at it from their perspective, it really was a courageous thing that they did. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been ideal. So now we are joined by Hank. Hello, Hank. Hello, everyone. And Adam. Hey, everyone. So now we can get into the meat and potatoes. Uh, I mentioned, I, I read the very beginning of the original uh, essay or survey, however you want to put it, that was published. There is a little bit of a story behind that because, as I understand it, and Hank, uh, you can fill, fill in any spots I'm missing, but they were originally commissioned, and by they, let's actually cover that real quickly. Hank, who are uh, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt? Well, Mearsheimer gets a lot more flack um, over this whole incident, mostly because of uh, he he like blurbed a couple of uh, books by uh, fairly self-hating Jews um, in the, uh, the early 2010s. So in most of these discussions, um, he collects more criticism than Walt does. He's also um, you know slightly fairly uh, more prominent in kind of a uh, academic context. When you say academia, like if you hang around some of these uh, IR guys, international relations guys, um, foreign policy guys, the line between uh, academia and sort of the think tank industrial complex and government is just paper thin. Like whatever they're doing at any particular moment is just, you know, sort of dictated by their scheduling. Um, but they're they're all in a very cozy uh, club. Mearsheimer's um, big thing was a particular brand of uh, realist foreign policy um, analysis, I guess, um, as opposed to like a uh, kind of advocacy position, Uh, basically offensive realism. The idea that you have states, they seek to defend their interests. And because it's a dark, scary world, you don't end up with a kind of stable, um, you know, uh, 1800s style, uh, like concert of Vienna where everybody is kind of, you know, respecting each other's legitimate interests. You end with everybody trying to ruthlessly advance their interests to the maximum extent possible, destabilizing their neighbors and trying to carve out, um, sort of a, uh, not just a sphere of influence, but carve out a, um, you know, sort of protectorates, um, so that their interests cannot be uh, 
cannot be directly threatened. It's sort of, uh, you know, when people say realism in our sphere, they, they talk a lot about like, you know, Pat Buchanan, the American conservative, that sort of strain of like, guys, why don't we tone it back a notch and focus on our legitimate interests? Uh, the Mearsheimer school of realism, which is, you know, predictive, it's not, it's not advocacy, but like his prediction for how states operate is that if you're truly operating in a realist paradigm, you seek basically hegemony um, or at least um, the ability to destabilize all of your neighbors, um, you know, kind of like Israel does, as we'll get into, um, to the extent that you're incapable of being threatened. Walt, I'm not as familiar with, um, other than like, you know, he's also of the realist school. Um, but most of the attention, honestly, seems to focus on on Mearsheimer and particularly most of the criticism, which is the interesting part of this whole dynamic, like the uh, the blowback and the counter blowback and the weird fact that both of them have survived it is I could speculate. I also don't know as much about Walt. I understand he's with the JFK uh, school of government and that Mearsheimer was, I think, at the University of Chicago. It, I guess, is possible. I mean, Mearsheimer also is the one who continues, you can catch, continuing to speak about this topic. Uh, it may be that Walt's, I, I don't know that their, their creative process, so to speak, as to you know who really provided the bulk of the research and the writing, but uh, the John F. Kennedy School of Government is very prestigious and well-connected amongst the power elite. So perhaps he felt yeah, more comfortable it's one of these like, like the the amount of circle jerking that goes on in these things is impossible to understate. Like the the idea that like one goes to the John F. Kennedy School of Government in order to discover how to run a government is absurd on its face. That's where Bill O'Reilly. Like, I, yeah, I mean they they have like of course a very prestigious. Uh, list of uh, alumni and faculty, but the idea that it's an educative process is oh, no, of course not. <laughs> no, it, it's just like it's networking for like a, an existing power elite. Um, it, it's like a consensus forging uh, institution. Like the fact that you have a uh, a role on the faculty there, um, it's it, it's something that that's kind of like a a naked signifier like it, it means like it's very contextual it could mean that like they just want your name on the masthead because like oh henry kissinger like that guy awesome um or it could be because like you just like directly constitute like a personal consensus point of the elite you know, it's like everybody reads Thomas Friedman and like ipso facto listens to people at the JFK School of Government. But yeah, that, that that's a digression. Like I, I have like such a low level of respect for like the institutional na nature of these things when I've like literally read better analysis of given situations from random anons on WordPress blogs. Sure. It's. You may compare John F. Kennedy's School of Government is, to, you may say it is to Harvard as the All Souls College is to Oxford, although uh, both have probably declined in any kind of real intellectual prestige. 
Uh, with that being said, let's discuss briefly how this came about, at least as far as we know, because I don't think we're ever going to get the entire story if, unless he writes his memoir or what have you. But as I understand it, they were commissioned to write something about the Israel lobby by the Atlantic Monthly, which, of course, these days is the the magazine is uh, the Atlantic Monthly is editor in chief is, of course, the arch Zog, uh, Zogling Jeffrey Goldberg, um, and so I I don't even think see the uh, the ex-Israeli uh, prison camp uh, guard. Yeah, he he uh, got hooked up with the. You, I mean, you can find him on on the Twitter and everything, and he's uh, yeah he he joined. He got like hooked up with the JDL, I think, in like the seventies, and then you know made Aaliyah and uh, did something for the IDF. Yeah, probably just like stepped on the testicles of Palestinian prisoners. FYI, uh, I've said uh, make Aaliyah enough times on Twitter that uh, evidently you don't get banned for it. Just throwing that out there. Never say never. It's a nice, it's a nice suggestion. Right. <laughs> he, yes. The reason I bring this up, though, is uh, not to say that the Atlantic was ever, I mean, it was, it was a, it, it, the origin of the Atlanta was like an uh, abolitionist, uh, uh, pro you know Lincoln Northern newspaper founded in the you know around the time of the war. Uh, but I don't think that they would have even asked somebody for because this the context I'm trying to establish is this this paper was commissioned actually right after nine eleven I believe, and it was written by around 2006 or perhaps earlier than 2006. But what happened was when they produced what they had been asked to produce, the editors looked it over and wanted nothing to do with it because it came to the exactly wrong conclusions that they wanted. And it was conclusions that, you know, in many ways are just self-evident, but... Especially they, given their backgrounds. Like, the realist case for U.S. engagement with Israel just doesn't freaking exist. Right, precisely. I don't know why you would commission like two realists if you wanted like a rah rah. This is what we get out of this thing joint. Yeah, that's that's exactly my point. And I'm the other point I would make is that I don't even like it's it's a bit of a mystery why they did it in the first place. But I can tell you that uh, these days you wouldn't. I mean, they would go nowhere even near requesting anyone to talk about this. So. I don't know, but what ended up happening was they had to shop around for someone to, you know, someone reputable or whatever to publish it. And I think it was a London, uh, London Review of Books that ended up publishing it. Uh, I maybe JFK pu published it also, but that was the original article, and then went through some revisions. In fact, I think it was maybe the London Review of Books that had the revised version, uh, but then that was turned into a expanded format which of a book uh, which came out I believe 2007 or so so that is some background is there anything you'd like to add to the background because it is a little bit interesting as you said Hank it's strange well, that they would have ever asked these two men in particular and it like at the time the political environment was not as sensitive as it currently is um, and particularly like again in the international relations sphere both of these guys are Americans, but there's uh, 
a little bit more room to play um, in uh, that uh, that sort of arena in like foreign uh, contexts, like London Review of Books. I can see them. I don't remember who the publisher is, but I can see them being more apt. It's funny you Uh, mention that because as for when the book version on the article as well, when both were released, uh, the greatest success and I think what brought it to the New York Times bestselling list when it was a book was actually the European audience. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you had people decrying, uh, you know, saying that, you know, Europeans aren't aren't sufficiently uh, slavish in their devotion to Israel, et cetera, and that they just don't understand the purpose of the American special relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and they knew what they were getting into because the article immediately had like just an incredible amount of blowback. The. Uh, let me see. They're, they actually mention a lot of this in the book, just like right up front. And they use the book um, to kind of explicate a lot of the uh, responses to the criticism that they garnered. Uh, they were denounced as anti-Semites by the Anti-Defamation League, by op-ed writers in the Jerusalem Post, New well, York not Sun. Not only that, Hank, but the Wall Street uh, Journal. But Abe Foxman wrote an entire book in reply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, the Deadliest Lies, like the Israel lobby and the myth of Jewish control. I mean, yeah, I mean, Alan Dershowitz, I don't know if his book uh, pre or post dates it. I think it post dates um, it also. Yeah, yeah I, I would also see that as sort of a, in the usual same suspects too, like Brett Stevens, of course, you know. Right. I mean, like everybody like on that, they everybody who is paid to do so, which is a shitload of people, uh, felt the need to throw their particular flaming turds over the wall. Yeah. Uh, who, who reads those books, by the way? I mean, are they just basically there for kind of uh, people's bookshelves for congressmen or something that like want to yeah. impress visiting dignitaries? I, I don't oh, quite get who reads these book? things. I mean, this book really like the the people bought this book. I mean, this, this was something. Yeah, no, like Abe Foxwell's well. book, like that. That's what I'm talking about. Like, uh, well, you know, the responses are like you get it out there so that you can demonstrate that like it's a it's partially a flex it's also partially consensus building as far as what the specific attack is going to be on the book Mm -hmm. because they they in the book they get into some of these double binds where you have places like the adl they have a couple of graphic uh scenes like cover your ears children where uh the uh the rep from the ADL like holds up a, a paper napkin. It's like in 24 hours, they can have the signatures of 70 U.S. senators on this napkin. Like you can't have that level of acknowledged, like braggadocio support, and like also simultaneously claim like, well, you know, we're we're just you know, we're just some, some guys like we're not even, it's no big deal. I just, you know, like you, you're forced, you're forced to like, you're forced to do a complete endorsement where, uh, you're supposed to say like, yeah, like this thing exists and it's big and it's big because it's important and everybody agrees and everybody's on the same train. Why aren't you on the same train? Like, why do you hate America? Why do you hate Israel? Like you, you're forced to like completely endorse the the idea of this very dominant uh, uh, faction of control, um, and in order to like be forced to like actually do that, everybody has to be on the same 
uh, trained because like it's a ridiculous claim on its face. So you can't really afford defections where people admit like, well, you know, they've got a point here or there. Like you need to be whole hog in like, no, this is, this is unacceptable. Well, until that point, I mean, uh, and, and Walter also quick to brag about the success of the, the piece in Israel. Uh, oh yeah. Dude, actually, <laughs> and this is, this is pre sort of the, uh, complete dominance of the right wing of Israeli politics. So, I mean, when they were writing in, uh, in you know, late 2006, probably this intro, like the Israeli left was kind of a, a big and, and growing concern. Like they're still around and, you know, Israel has very strident uh, internal debates about these things. And particularly like the Jewish left in America has gotten a little bit more um, vocal uh, rhetorically about uh, sort of engaging with these, um, you know, mostly around like the Palestinians, not so much around the strategic implications, because that's like, you know, uh, IR politics nerd stuff. Um you know, how that translates in uh, domestic political power contexts is, you know, they it doesn't, honestly. Um, and they get into some of that. Well, one of their great sins was that they were using, they quoted a lot of sources, and for contemporary material, those sources, of course, include newspapers, uh, particularly Jewish newspapers. And this is something that anyone familiar with the dissident right uh, in the current context, i.e. you, the listener, would be quite familiar with, which is, they will never, I mean, they, they won't do it to you because no one really cares what you have to say, but, or us, you know, we're on the same boat here. But if you use, you know, the right, our right is fond of pointing to places like the forward or even Haaretz to make the same points that we will make. Jerusalem Post, et cetera, et cetera. And this is exactly what they did. And Um, not even that, but like going into the Israeli archives, like there's, they, they discuss um, briefly, um, these are all books, it's extensively footnoted and it's worth looking up their sources, the uh, quote unquote, new Israeli history or the new history um, in, you know, as a phrase of Israel, where they're actually going into the primary source documents, the journals, they're demystifying the initial um, hagiography of basically the first generation of Israeli leaders and actually exploring, you know, what happened on the ground and what people's uh, concrete motivations were, which, you know, paints a far more unsavory picture of exactly how that whole, uh, that whole event um, in uh, 1948 shook out. And on the subject of the double bind, and another thing that you, the listener, will be familiar with is, so they have to, from the get-go, they have to start doing all of the expected cartwheels regarding anti-Semitism. I think it comes with the obligatory denunciation of David Duke. Oh, and it's continuous. It's continuous, and, too. It's, and it's actually really well done. Like you, you appreciate yeah, they, it. As they did some all right cartwheels. I mean, it, it because they like once they get it out of the way, you they kind of get into just the actual meat and potatoes. It comes back. But, a bunch, but then so. they they make sure to like they bookend everything with it. Yeah, they bookend. Yeah, precisely. But what is funny about that is in the context of the logic that they're using and the arguments that they're putting forward, the fact that they're so 
uh, intent on distancing themselves from anti-Semitism is interesting because it obviously begs the question, well, why is anti-Semitism a political death sentence in the United States? Why, if, why is the charge of anti-Semitism uh, so disastrous for, for political actors? Yeah. I mean, this is this is the fundamental um, issue um, that doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't diminish like the concrete claims of the book because it's really obvious where their substantive analysis ends and their uh, sort of defensive um, claims begin. Like you can you can see that line from space. So, like, you don't actually need to believe, um, you don't need to have the same lacunae, the same, like, giant black holes of, like, lack of analysis that they're forced to show in order to, like, engage with the analysis that they do show. So, their, their like, background um, uh, kind of framework here is uh, actually kind of similar to the way that like realists engage with states that like there's no such thing as a special state there's no unique state there's just these states in different circumstances but they seem to follow the same modus operandi they have the same levers they engage with each other and these symmetrical ways it's not like you know vatican city is blessed by god and so they have a unique way of engaging it's like no they just have like they're this tiny little thing without a lot of power but like some amount of political influence and you can just kind of analyze them as a vanilla thing and they try to do this they try to do the same thing with Israel and with the Jewish lobby, the Israel yes. lobby, okay. as they so, phrase so it. So to this point, I wanted to jump in on something, which is there is one area where you do see the defensive posturing bleed into the substantive claims, which is where they start to claim to the, the point that Hank just made. They do make the claim that the presence of various ethnic lobbies who represent, you know, ethnic groups that do have foreign states uh, is a thoroughly American thing. Right. So that there is nothing abnormal that, about this. That's the from specific an claim that I was going to get. So, I mean, their, their phrasing is, look, American Jews and like we can kind of almost dismiss like I I don't even want to get into the Christian right it's like they exist they are a fig leaf they're treated as such in the book like that's the, the extent of their analysis the interesting thing is to talk about the Jewish component of the Israel lobby so we can just restrict ourselves to that and when they talk about the Jewish component of the Israeli lobby they make the claim that look there's a lot of different lobbies in the U.S. for gun control, for gun rights, for banking, for, um, you know, for uh, the Armenian genocide. Um, and like there's also these guys for uh, for Israel. And OK, so why is this particular lobby so completely dominant over this sphere um, in U.S. politics? And they do get into some of the reasons. Like, in short, their reasons are, well, they have a shitload of money. Uh, they are extremely good at infiltrating staffers uh, into large organizations and setting up organizations that serve as an echo chamber. And they're very good at coordinating um, to uh, unify all of these different levers of power to achieve their results. So basically, resources, coordination, and infiltration. 
And the question arises then, okay, so like, but why do they possess these levers? And that's the leap that they never make. That obviously, like, okay, why do they have a lot of money to throw at this problem? It's like, well, <laughs> what if I told you that 2% of the population had like an absolutely dominant position over major chunks of finance? Why do they have access to all of these uh, media levers? It's like, well, what if I told you that like this small proportion of the population controlled this vast amount of media apparatus? It's like, okay, but why is that? And, you know, then that's a completely different book where they have zero desire or inclination to talk about like, okay, but like, why does the Jewish component of the Israel lobby have power? Like, in short, like, why does Jewish power in the U.S. exist? And why is it they, existed clear, in this pattern to Hank, in Hank many ways? Distinguishing between the country. Jewish component of the Israel lobby and the, you know, Christian Zionist or just general political mercenary component. And a point that they make in the book regarding the lobby, and as the general outline goes, is that the lobby really did not have that much power until around the 1970s. I mean, it, it, that's when it starts to really pick up. Uh, but that's not to say, well, and they don't say that Jewish power in America predates that. They don't get into the extent to which you know Jewish banking power uh, gangsters, fixers, power brokers uh, were infiltrating and subverting <clears throat> American institutions uh, in the early 20th century. Yeah, the historiography is really, really weak here. And it's better if you kind of look at their contemporary description of how this operated kind of uh, in the, you know, 1992, basically the, the Clinton and Bush and uh, Bush the second years if you look at it as kind of a snapshot of how this worked in practice at that time. Because, yeah, I mean, they, they discuss kind of these historical uh, circumstances. Like, they discuss, you know, the Yom Kippur uh, airlift, uh, Yom Kippur war airlift in 73. And, like, the uh, the kerfuffle over Saudi, uh, Saudi uh, airplane sales in, like, 81 or 83, whenever that was. Um, but they they don't really analyze those things in depth or use them as kind of uh, guideposts to like track the thing that's driving them, which is the growth of Jewish power. Um, do, do they, they talk about use, the Saudi alliance at all? Uh, they do. Um, so they talk about it in a couple of contexts. So they they bring up like the uh, the lack of effective counter lobbies. Like basically one of their claims for why the Jewish component of the Israel lobby is so influential is because like, well, in the grand scheme of things, they're not asking for that much. Um, like imagine gigantic air quotes around this whole thing because, you know, having spent like coming up on 20 years uh, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, that uh, that seems like fairly fairly significant table stakes but disregarding that like in terms of the absolute quantity of aid like it's a lot for israel but it's something that like the average american taxpayer like it's just a number on a page it has no concrete impact on them and there's nobody advocating the other way like the saudis are allied with israel um, which they don't really get into a lot like i think just to contain the scope of the book 
but the sort of anti-Israel Arab lobby in the U.S. doesn't really exist worth mentioning. They have no uh, they have no domestic political constituency in the U.S. They have some amount of money. Um, most of that is like Saudi money and Bahrainian money that isn't actually at all opposed to Israel. So um, they sort of dismiss them. Um, dismiss that out of hand as like a uh, a significant factor i guess yeah i mean they leave out and talk about poor historiography i mean they leave out uh, over two thousand years of what the emperor claudius would call the fermenters of a universal plague i mean the distinction that you see could pop up even the late justin raimondo who i have a lot of respect for uh, it's the same problem you see it with a lot of really sound writers on anti-Zionism or, you know, taking a look at American interests uh, in the context of the Middle East and Israel uh, is that they all succumb to the to the symbol of, of anti-Zionism, not anti-Semitism. And when all is said and done, it actually makes for a much weaker analysis because it's not true. The truth is goes much further, which is that we're dealing with the people who are themselves um, a world problem and have been for thousands of years. Well, I was intimating that a little bit earlier, that this is a pattern that other countries have experienced more than once, more than twice, more than a dozen times. I mean, it's, it's a consistent pattern. And if people want to point to this or that circumstance, I think they're missing the point that the people are the consistent thread through this entire history of thousands of years um and the most recent one the most obvious parallel is probably weimar germany and ernst zundel made that point to an israeli journalist in a very uh very powerful way basically said that the amount of power that the the jewish people have in the united states is very similar to what happened in germany and the jews are basically going to probably pay the price if things don't change so that's, yeah, that's, and this was this actually that actually brings up a point, which is that they they also really try to couch this in terms of oh we're not just operating under the realist assumption of what is good for American interests, but we're also very concerned about what is good for Israel's interests, uh, which I I don't even know like if I I don't think that they actually make a sound case for that side of it. I I think that yeah, but the token. Uh... So they, they actually do that in two different directions. So uh, they make the kind of silly case that the, the Israel lobby, and they give a couple of instances of them being like, quote unquote, more extreme than the Israeli government. Um, uh, and a couple of instances where like uh, a few U.S. senators wanted to like cut aid to the Palestinian authority um, by more than the Israeli government was asking for. It's like, oh, surprise, like two factions of Jews like disagreed about something like like in terms of the amount, like not not the direction at all, but the amount. But they make the claim that uh, this has been negative for the Israeli uh, position, which I think is laughable at this point. Um, it's it's uh, it's absurd to claim that Israel is not in a far better um, strategic uh, position by pushing the envelope uh, time after time um, and getting bailed out when necessary. Um, they've certainly had misadventures that have been enabled by the U.S. Uh, support, particularly the Second Lebanon War in uh, 2006, I want to say. Um, yeah. 
but uh, in whole, like their you know thirty year um, strategic plan has been a smashing success. They also do the other thing when they're talking about the Israel lobby, and they make the claim that oh well, these uh, this lobby in the U.S. obviously. They're just patriotic, red-blooded American citizens who want the best for America and happen to also have a soft spot for Israel, which I think is also uh, a, that's a more defensible on-face contention, but it sort of ignores the fact that the other political activities of many of the personalities and groups that they discuss are in a lot of people's minds, in my mind, designed to destabilize the United States. Yes. And in fact, like particularly things like refugees, you see them having completely opposing policies. Like, you know, this is why refugees for Israel is a troll, because there is no way in hell that the Anti-Defamation League or APAC or any of these other actors would support a single one of the people that they unleash upon the U.S. setting foot on the sacred soil of Israel. Yeah, and they concede as well. They concede the point that, again, back to the hypocrisy from the realist perspective, they also concede that Israel is an exceptional state where most states are not entitled, especially in America, or everyone has heard this a million times before, but most most states are not entitled to uh, having a racial quality to an ethnic purpose and they they refer to uh, Israel every time as the Jewish state and they say exactly this because of you know blah 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 unique historical circumstances of you know most six million uh, and whereas in America of course it's perfectly normal to have foreign subversive groups uh, running lobbies uh, in the state well they they do make the they have a certain amount of ambiguity, which was like the Israeli position of what exactly was meant by we are a Jewish state or we are the Jewish state. Yes. Um, was ambiguous until, um, you know, varying levels of sort of continuously gotten more and more explicit about that, what that means to the point where now uh, Bibi Netanyahu is like, yes, like Israel is a state of its Jewish citizens. Like Arab citizens, not so much. Like we are, like he essentially made it explicit that like we are a ethno state, we are an specifically exclusionary ethno state. It's not that just we happen to be a Jewish majority, therefore like we rule in the interests of the majority of our citizens. It's like no, like the soul of our nation is like to rule in favor of the Jewish population even if they were to, and actually he mentions, and Jews worldwide, uh, even should they form a minority of their uh, sort of explicit polity. Another distinction, because I mentioned Justin Raimondo, and in many ways I'd, I'd like to dedicate, for what it's worth, this episode to the late Justin Raimondo. But one other little trick that they do to moderate their position, and I don't know if this is genuine and that they actually were because they were older and they may have truly been cold warriors, but one difference between what Raimondo's position would be and their position is they will say that uh, U.S. support for Israel during the Cold War might, uh, always a little, with a little caveat, but might have been a good idea. Because eh. of Russian support for satellite, you know, for for their 
their proxy states, et cetera, blah, 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 the Arab states being uh, funded by the USSR, and therefore Israel was good for this reason. But now that the Cold War is over, it's becoming increasingly bad. Whereas Justin Raimondo would point out that the Cold War was a racket in many respects that allowed for the real enemies of the United States to gain power inside the United States. Yeah, I mean, their, uh, their analysis of the, you know, kind of historical internal power dynamics of the U.S., I mean, that's just, they like the historical ones as opposed to the empirical, like, contemporary evidence that they have. Again, like, their historiography is just yeah. kind of... Yeah, we can definitely agree it, It's that. not. It's not necessarily wrong it's just kind of lacking and that's not really their focus it's it's background so I, when we talk about like the israel lobby being dominant in uh in u.s politics that they start off the book with getting into um, a whole bunch of detail about um, the extent to which that's the case uh, these numbers have obviously changed over the course of the last decade but I don't think by the order of magnitude. Um, but as of 2005, um, the U.S. had uh, contributed $154 billion in direct aid um, between, I guess, 1948 and then. They provide copious amounts of uh, technology assets, for instance, to advanced U.S. radar guidance, uh, everything else, access to private aid from particular uh, Jewish uh, foundations. All this adds up to about uh, 2% of Israeli GDP, which sounds minor until you realize that, okay, if you're a state and you want to raise 2% of GDP in taxes, that requires fairly onerous uh, tax rises. Like, you know, if the government is collecting a fifth of your country's GDP in taxes, that would require them to raise taxes by 10%. That's a lot. It works out to about 500 bucks uh, per Israeli. Um, and, you know, never, uh, never being one to miss an opportunity, uh, unlike every other uh, recipient of U.S. aid, we basically uh, ship them a, a check FedExed uh, dated to the uh, first of the fiscal year uh, every year, rather than stringing it out, just, uh, you know, can collect a little bit of the extra interest there for the, the intermediate period. Not only does it, uh, is it an enormous amount of money, but when the U.S. sends aid, like you, you'll see this uh, this tack taken um, in a lot of uh, uh, kind of um, quasi uh, quasi woke right wing things that oh, like U.S. aid, it's really a subsidy to the uh, the military industrial complex because you're normally obliged to take this money and spend it on U.S. hardware. So it's like you know the money takes a round trip through Tel Aviv before it lands back in Washington, D.C. to be cashed by Lockheed or Boeing or whatever. But in the special Israeli circumstance, they're allowed to spend a quarter of it uh, on Israeli hardware, which means that Israel is now the world's eighth largest uh, arms exporter because they can support those economies of scale. They get a special waivier where... Normally, when the U.S. Uh, gives military aid, 
it's routed through uh, its a particular office in the De- Department of Defense. It's like the Defense Assistance Office or something. Basically, if you're, you know, Bhutan or whatever, and you get a bunch of U.S. aid and you want to buy some hardware, you call up your general, who's your liaison, probably not a general, maybe a colonel or a major if you're Bhutan. You're like, hey, Major Johnson, uh, we'd like to purchase uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, M16s and a bunch of mortars or whatever. He's like, okay, well, I'll talk to our supplier, um, and uh, you know, he'll uh, he'll ship it over, and uh, you know, we'll deduct that from your account. Then, when you actually receive the hardware, you have a liaison who's actually in your country that's making sure that it's like actually hardware. You're not just cashing the checks, you're not wasting the money, uh, you're not just straight up embezzling the money. Israel has none of that. So Israel is allowed to place direct orders. They don't have, it's kind of like, a, you know, like when people start abusing your corporate expense policy and, uh, you know, you don't have to have a receipt under $10. So you see a bunch of charges for like $9.99 at Starbucks. And it's like, how much coffee can one man possibly drink? Well, if you're an Israeli uh, and you're the head of the uh, Israeli Air Force, uh, then you're embezzling tens of millions of dollars because you don't have to uh, get uh, prior approval under 500 grand at a time. The, <laughs> oh my gosh, it just kind of keeps on going. If you're at all familiar with government contracting, uh, evidently none of that really applies to Israel is the, uh, the long and short of it. And that's just the monetary side. So, Besides, like, the direct contributions, the U.S. is obliged to pre-position, quote-unquote pre-position, implying it's for U.S. usage, $400 million worth of uh, weapons at any given time in Israel. Except for, you don't get to actually use it for the many U.S. adventures in the neighborhood. Uh, Because it's just sort of in a big warehouse it's not like assigned to particular units so it would be extremely logistically onerous to actually get that to the correct units however if you're the israeli army uh you know in intricate detail exactly what's there and exactly to whom it's allocated and you can use it for things like your 2006 invasion of lebanon so it's effectively a floating uh sort of a floating uh, a line of credit or line of equity um, that we provide them so that they're not put in the situation they were in 1973 of actually having to have the U.S. Uh, want them to survive in order to have their uh, strategic uh, reserve uh, of hardware. Uh, in addition to this, uh, you also have the development of uh, joint development, quote-unquote, of uh, things like their aero uh, missile systems and various other avionics. Joint development and giant air quotes because the U.S. actually has a defense industry that has completely different programs and uses none of this output. In reality, it's solely for the benefit of the Israeli uh, defense establishment. So... The long and short of this is even just on the purely military contributionary um, side to say nothing of the fact that they basically have a pocket veto in the UN, that the US will go out of their way to threaten uh, countries that are inimicable to their interests. If anyone is so bold as to like recognize the Palestinian government or whatever, they get their aid cut off. But if you just look at the monetary side of things, like you can take the paper value of this aid and essentially double it 
um, because of all the various uh, exemptions and kickbacks and sort of a greasing of the skids um, that's allowed to happen. And then, like, you know, you can get into the fact that the U.S. is their attack dog in the United Nations and prevents there from being any sanctions imposed upon them. They prevent any investigation of their nuclear program at the International Atomic Energy Agency. They're happy to threaten their neighbors on their behalf. They allow them to act uh, against U.S. interests in places like Syria, where they were literally arming al-Qaeda and treating them in Israeli hospitals it sort of goes on and on and on and on. And I'm sure I've talked at enough uh, length that uh, I, I don't need to uh, uh, hammer the point anymore. I had, a, I had just two comments. Um, You're talking about how Israel is effectively given literal and figurative air support in their military operations in the region. They recently used the uh, American-made, at great ex- U.S. taxpayer expense, uh, as we profiled recently, uh, the F-35 stealth fighter uh, in Iraq to target Iranian um, operations there. This is from Zero Hedge. Uh, and I was also going to mention, if you guys haven't touched on it already, uh what happens to U.S. congressmen when they not only just object, but raise the question, like, what's going on? Why do we all have to go to APAC? Why is this country constantly oh, Adam, involved in wars? I can tell you what least? happens. You well, get chained to the inside of an empty diesel truck, and you get dragged around until you have uh, basically gangrene on your extremities, and then you get thrown in federal prison. Well, Nick, the that's example exactly what happened to James Traficant. Yeah, I was going to mention him because you've... Uh, mentioned this to me many times i mean he i didn't hear about the diesel truck i mean he died uh, allegedly while he was riding his tractor now, this was before they, he was thrown in prison this is what's called diesel therapy mm, and this is what they, yeah. yeah okay yeah but his death was very suspicious as well uh and he was he was put in into prison after he basically made the points that we're making uh and it was uh it was over God, probably something like they got uh, Dinesh D'Souza on. It was it was very suspicious, but um, yeah, I mean, you you basically get you get punished, you get punished. So well, this that's is what's so this funny about this happen. book, though, is that they basically implicitly they're like they they ask the basic question is is an alliance with Israel in the United States' interest, and they slowly start to wind it back, and it's like mm, maybe it's not so great. By the end, it's like, wait, it seems like what you're describing is a hostile enemy state that's actually a national security threat. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, so their attempts to um, sort of portray the other side fairly in terms of like, oh, this is what the U.S. gets out of it. You, you can see the, the sort of disdain uh, coming from their, uh, uh, again, like, because they're realists when they talk about like, Oh, like we're metaphysical brothers because, uh, we both fight terror. Like that's just the purest form of bullshit. Um, when you're like talking about state interests as like a coherent state, having like concrete objectives and threats and payoffs, the notion that we're both fighting terror is ludicrous. And the, as like a reason for friendship that like, Oh yes, well we both dislike this tactic. 
um, implying that either the U.S. or Israel, um, in any sense, uh, you know, is fighting terrorism as opposed to being gigantic proponents of its effectiveness. Um, so when they like say that with a straight face, that like ah, this is what the other side claims is the contemporary justification for this to exist. Um, you can tell that they're they're sort of uh, damning with faint praise, right? And the other the other concept that you're not going to see them use the actual word, but they are effectively describing it, which is of course treason. Yeah, when they talk about like the um, they they have a whole section here. I, I recommend getting the the ebook um, just so that you can. Uh, uh, easily track all of the uh, references back and forth. I guess you can do that in the uh, in the paper one too, but it's not quite as easy to find uh, their source material um, or to do the uh, the control F for things like dual loyalty. And they they do this nice uh, tap dance where it's like dual loyalty. What does that mean? I mean, nobody's saying that these guys aren't patriotic or that they don't love America. It's just you know, I mean. You have a soft spot for uh, for Norway if you're you're in the uh, the U.S. Uh, Sons of Norway. It's a fraternal well, you, you know who did question their loyalty? Richard Nixon. He said, uh, and this is from a book by Roger Stone, by the way. So, uh, what, what the hell is wrong with these Jews? No, he basically I think that was said his quote. Jew, Jews need to. Well, there's many quotes about the Jews uh, in those tapes, uh, especially uh, that are quite interesting. But uh, what uh, what he said in this Stone biography of the guy was basically if Jews would consider themselves Americans first and not Jews first, you know, we, we could, we could work with these people, but they don't is the implication. Yeah. And they, so he brings up the case of Henry Kissinger, who's actually a fairly good, uh, example of somebody who actually acted in the interests. I know a lot of people disagree, but my yeah. opinion, that he was acting like entirely in the interests of the U.S. at times. Uh, and it's interesting like to know negotiating that with the Israeli I, government. I would agree at times. We can do a whole show on Kissinger, but it's worth oh, noting sure. that Kissinger himself actually denounced the book. Yeah, I mean that's fine. I guess like he he has like very uh, um, esoteric reasons for particular bits of rhetoric that he holds contemporaneously, but they they do this tack of like. Uh, for instance, w when they're talking about um, why they don't just come out and say the Jewish lobby, it's like, well, you have to understand there's other guys than Jews in this thing. There's these uh, these Christian Zionists, and not literally every American Jew is on the same page. There's not a cabal or a conspiracy because uh, there's not a complete domination and most of their uh, actions happen in, in the open, except for, of course, you know, the infiltration of staff into various offices and all of the networks of power and the uh, various uh, covert organizations and et cetera, et cetera. But aside from those, um, <laughs> yeah, aside, aside the, from the fact that just as this was like being written and published, you have Apex, uh, Steve Rose <laughs> engaged in uh, overt espionage. Yeah, yeah. But aside from that, it's all very, very uh, over the table and completely normal. Like they, they do the uh, the straw man of at like every possible point of um, kind of what the substantive claim is of the uh, the thing that they're going to be accused of. 
in order to like be excessively fair um, so that they can then like blow that straw man out of the water. I mean, it's not, it's not quite like uh, Democrats are the real racists, but it's like, you know, call me a Nazi. Why? No, I'm not a member of the national socialist democratic party of Germany, whatever the acronym is like that was dissolved in 1945. Like the highest, the highest form of like, uh, like claiming the most ridiculous, uh, ridiculous, uh, interpretation, rhetorical interpretation of what's being alleged. And then saying, of course that can't be true. Therefore, like Jewish power doesn't exist. The, their main rhetorical thing is, we just want what's best for American interests and Israeli interests, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Which is like a fine tack to take because when you get into like when people are actually forced to justify why do we have this relationship with Israel, that's. Uh, the choice of what particular um, tack they're going to make, like there's a limited playbook to come through. And one of the, uh, you know, super above board and totally normal uh, things to do is like the distribution of these literal talking points and organizations that exist uh, for that specific purpose. But when you force them to actually sit down and commit to one of those positions in order to attack um, people like Mearsheimer and Waltz, most of those uh, are very lacking, and they address a lot of those specifically in the book. Like it, the book is, it's a good job of BTFOing the standard like half dozen uh, uh, pieces of you know just raw rhetoric in most cases that comprise uh, the playbook of like so why do we like Israel again? How much of this was because they felt like they wanted to get published and they were self-censoring or distorting some of the message to get it get it out and, at and all? Like they don't need to like they didn't need to write a book. It's just like a. I don't think either of these guys has the same conception. Like I'm probably being a little like imputing a little bit more wokeness. They're definitely more woke than the book lets on, just because of like the rhetorical tricks that they do. But I don't believe that they genuinely sort of uh, appreciate that this is like one of the major issues facing uh, U.S. society. Like yeah, when they, they they don't appreciate you're dealing with again enemies and treason. But to your point, Hank, about their conclusion section is hilarious because they're like, yeah, there's no real way out uh, because. There's no way that you're going to ever be able to diminish the power of these groups. There's no possible lobby that can rise up uh, and be a counterbalance to them. So I guess maybe you have to appeal to their patriotism and uh, just convince them with gold fashioned argumentation that, you know, maybe this isn't in the interests of uh, in the interests of everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, maybe there should be a lobby for the benefits of American interests that's more powerful than uh foreign enemies but to your point hank uh, as to people's responses to this if you force them to sit in a chair and explain themselves i think what's interesting is they can't it's because of again the realist position that they take 
that makes it so difficult for the usual shills to engage with it because the preferred method is the moral case for Israel, right. yes, which has absolutely. nothing to do with interests. And they do, do they of course anticipate this, they understand this, uh, and they they address this. And this is in general like the Israel the. The Zog shill machine, or rather the specifically for the Zionist entity, really comes out in force when you start talking about um, Israeli crimes and <clears throat> brutalities committed against yes. the Arabs. That's the Iraq yeah. section were the, the yeah. parts that got the most pushback. That's exactly because... For the perspective of mass appeal and appealing to the American rube whose uh, mind and soul is infected by the American religion, this is where they prefer to have the discussion to the extent there's any discussion. All this is where the browbeating is to happen. It's not they're not going to browbeat you over the fact that is Israeli uh, Israeli lobbying is in the interests of Americans so much as. Uh, they're going to make the moral claims that about Israel and the suffering of uh, the Jew and blah, blah, blah. But more importantly, uh, they'll do also appeals to the whole shared values thing that you've heard a million times before. Israel's the only democracy in the region. And they actually make quick work of this, impressively enough. Is this where they make the insufferable Ben Shapiro do the rounds? Uh, how do you mean? Well, I... I, well, I, I'm talking I about Mirsheimer and Wall. They they make quick work of the even the concept that I'm just Israel talking is about the strategy yeah. of equating the moral significance of America and Israel together, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Together. Yeah, in in Ben Shapiro's case, it's it's the American religion he's appealing to. Uh, that's that's why he exists at all. Yeah, I mean, there. This is chapter three, um, a dwindling moral case. Um, this is nothing that would be unfamiliar uh, to uh, anyone who has opened a newspaper over the last decade, probably. Um, it, it is the sort of thing where um, back in this time frame, um, there is a big attempt to uh, sort of obfuscate um, these issues as much as possible, have like as much disingenuous uh, rhetoric as possible. But I mean, when you get down to it, like Israel is a regional hegemon. They are not the quote unquote underdog. They're by far the largest military or not largest, but most well-equipped and empirically effective military uh, in the region. They have the most hardware, the biggest budget. They have nuclear weapons. They have submarines. Like, they have no position of uh, danger as far as anyone is concerned. The worst thing that happens to Israel is that occasionally somebody will lob a handful of homemade rockets over the wall. Usually they hit a rock, a, an empty field. Like, it's it's kind of difficult, actually, to, to hit stuff with those things, turns out. Every so often they might hit a house. Like, their casualties from rocket attacks over the last decade are, are completely minimal. Yeah, In I, return, a, I have a friend who's a, a listener to the show, actually, so... What's up, man, if you're listening? But um, he would he had some himself. He had some Arab friends and who back when they lived there, they would have to slip across the border 
to like try to find a high place to try to find a you know a nice heavy rock to drop it on a on a Jew and you know crack his head. But it was difficult. You had to get the aim right, and it's I mean it's not easy if you try. It takes practice, and you can maybe only get one or two Jews with a with a rock. I mean usually you need a couple rocks to get even one. But you got to get out of there quick, or else you'll be tortured to death. <clears throat> yeah, I mean that, that's sort of the the trade off, right? Like in exchange for uh, suffering the risk of like occasional car accident level fatalities, uh, like it's it's sort of an overused term, and it's it's actually more restrictive than South African apartheid by far. But it's it is an apartheid state, like. It, the Gaza Strip is just the world's largest open-air prison camp. It has completely controlled imports and exports. They are not allowed to have a economy to travel internationally, uh, to have any sort of indigenous uh, industry. They're completely at the mercy of their uh, rulers, which is to save the Israeli government. They have no political participation, even in the Palestinian uh, government to the extent that it exists in the Gaza Strip, which is minimal. The, if an Israeli marries a Palestinian, the Palestinian does not get citizenship. Right. And this is all like now explicit that like Israel operates in the interests of its Jewish population, not of its citizens. What about the it was kids? a dog whistle on the Israeli uh, left for a while to say that Israel should be a state of all its citizens. That's just a, a defunct uh, talking point now. The the extent to which like the Palestinian uh, territories are intentionally uh, uh, destabilized um, or kept in uh, kept in subjugation because like in the case of the Palestinian territories, a sort of a stable uh, stable level of shittiness is the preferred uh, Israeli outcome, uh, as opposed to when it's uh, sort of uh, near uh, near abroad uh, neighbors. Um, the it's unconscionable, um, and if you are going to accept a Western uh, the sort of like Western liberal conception of how a state should re- relate to the people that it rules. Now, if you go full like full kind of uh, Israeli Nazbol and you're like the uh, the BB quote. There's tons of good BB quotes, but uh, essentially it's like the weak should fear the strong dot text. Like we have the rights to uh, do whatever we want to the uh, Palestinians because we lost the war and et cetera, et cetera. If you accept that frame, then like fine, I guess, but then like you would have to uh, sort of admit a lot of uh, behavior that. Jewish organizations in the United States are very quick to uh, compare uh, in different contexts, uh, different nations doing them to, uh, you know, the Holocaust and et cetera, et cetera. Which, Hank, is precisely the reason for the discrepancy between uh, Jewish news for Jews and Jewish news for the so-called goyim. Right. I mean, these things are not hard to find, like these exact points of rhetoric. If you actually like look at who shows up to a BDS meeting, uh, the boycott, divest, and sanction, it's like it's in many cases majority Israeli cat lady or not Israeli, majority Jewish cat ladies. Yeah, I I was like actually take the leftist talking points somewhat seriously. There are Jews that I've met that uh, espouse 
the anti-Zionist ideology of open borders for everyone, including obviously the United States, obviously, but including Israel. And that yeah. uh, that's very interesting to me. Um, but those are people, have those are people though, who don't themselves have power. Is that what you just said too, Hank? Yeah, zero power yeah. in Israel yeah. and zero, zero power. power. There's sure. precisely that. Sure. And, it's, and there's people implanted among them who are themselves operatives who are here working both sides of the dialectic. I mean, you could get a few don't have power, but are, you know, serious people and uh, an honest journalist. Actually, you can only get one. And that's the uh, love wise. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a few of his, you know, writers and associates, I guess, as well. But Philip Weiss, if you want the anti-Zionist perspective from a Jew uh, that's actually more or less honest, uh, you could read Philip Weiss at amandaweiss.net or .com, I forget which it is. And this situation uh, postdates this book, but if you look at the way that Israel has behaved in its near abroad, particularly in Syria, uh, over the course of the last, uh, how long has their civil war been going on? Like five years? Like, it, it's clear that the Israeli strategic interest is in having weak and unstable neighbors, like, that is the Israeli priority. They want a civil war smoldering in every country from Pakistan to Morocco. It's always been interesting to me, and I completely agree with that thesis. I mean, you have to just look as far as Iraq, Lebanon, Egypt, but and Syria. But Jordan and Saudi Arabia are always like these... We, we never hear the rhetoric against them in the media. Yeah, and and it, it's it's fascinating to me that these are the exceptions. I mean, this this could switch on a dime. Like, the Saudis are uh, extremely uh, allied for the moment um, with the Israelis, and they are, like, objectively, like, extremely weak. Like, they, the, the Saudis have been getting their asses kicked by, like... Uh, malnourished disease ridden Yemeni tribalists like ever since they intervened there like they've they just like lost an airport like their their army literally cannot defend their borders from a couple of dudes with rusty AKs like a lot of the times this is a straw man when you talk about like all oh, these Arabs like living in caves and like hammering out AKs but gosh they're good fighters but like, in this case, it literally is the case. The Saudis don't want a strong army because if you have a strong, competent army, then, like, why do you need this completely degenerate ruling class of uh, royals? Like, why wouldn't you just have the army in charge? So they're basically just a big pool of money that uh, pays off, to some extent, um, you know, the people that offer them protection from their uh, local rivals the uh, iranians and to some extent the uh, the yemenis are really anybody competent and in yeah. this case it's it's israel and the united states so right. for the moment they're perfectly happy to cooperate with them i'm sure that that would turn into a uh, extortionate uh, relationship as soon as it was possible just because that's the complete modus operandi yeah con contra thomas wichter uh, there are no there's no uh, Saudi warrior aristocracy of super soldiers. I wish. Oh, man. Cyborg. Uh, yeah, I wish we had cyborg commandos running around doing orbital insertions. Very, uh, very technopunk. Uh, 
But instead we have like, you know, oh, my cousin, he's really dumb. Therefore, the army is a really good place to put him. Uh, here's the fanciest military hardware. This uh, guy from Lockheed told me works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, make sure, uh, you know, don't blow up anything important. I mean, if, if we're going to beat up on the Saudis a little bit, I mean, I have a few anecdotes that I've, I've well, I have more than a few, but the, the one that immediately jumped to mind was um, these YouTube videos of these, these like Saudis who have nothing to do. They do not have jobs. I mean, they're basically just on welfare and then they have foreigners doing all the construction work uh, probably like Dubai. Uh, but they're, they do this uh, ghost riding the whip thing where they're like, they're, they tilt the car up onto oh, two, two wheels, wheels and then they drive down cool. the highway. Yeah, it's cool. But I mean, Jesus, like th this is all they have to do all day. Uh, and, that only and, works if you have a really straight road that you paid somebody like the uh, Bin Laden's a lot of uh, money to make sure is nicely graded straight zero degrees from uh, Riyadh to... Saw, uh, um, right, and the Bin Laden's made a ton of money doing that. But uh, the uh, other one that came to mind, uh, this is from some documentary I watched on the Saudi royal family and how much money they have and just they don't know what to do with it. It's it's, it's absolutely insane. I mean, they, they're basically a... a a stone age civilization that discovered they have trillions of dollars underneath their feet. Uh, and then suddenly they're buying all this junk. It's like people who win the lottery. These, these morons who buy lottery tickets, a few of them win. Uh, statistically you're losing money every time you buy one probability adjusted for what you're expected to get in a payoff. But, um, so these people hit the lottery. And so they, th this other example that came to mind was, uh, this chic, don't ask me how his relations work with all the other sheiks out there, but he invested his money in a dune buggy rover house uh, and the house. So basically imagine a car that is as big as a house and the house is actually uh, it's, it's, it's not a car shape. It's not a house shape. It's a sphere. It's a spherical shape. And it's, it's a, it's a globe that drives <laughs> over the from desert. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Kind of looks like Wasn't the Technodrome, it? yeah, uh, but it's it's got like the, uh, the the continents painted on the side of it or something like that. And he lives in his in his house that drives over the desert with his family, and this is what he does with his money. And if there's other there's the obvious guys who basically Honestly, banging, that's that's uh, not American a bad and, use and, of, uh, that amount of cash. Well, compared uh, to the the guys who who fly in all these degenerate women from the West and the Eastern Bloc to be prostitutes for them, and then and then give them supercars, you know, as a reward. I mean that, that that's the other type. I mean half of probably maybe not half, but a huge chunk of Donald Trump's. Uh, suites, I'm sure, are owned by Saudis to do this type of stuff that are in New York for that very reason. I mean, they have all this money. And there's videos you can watch of these the girlfriends of these guys that, that get into these cars and the amount of money these guys have. It's just ridiculous. I mean, they're they're pimps. They're, that's all they do. And it's, I'm not surprised they're losing a war. They're they're weak people. You know, they don't have yeah, I mean, the hardness Damians in their are, life. are a different sort of situation where they're also um, allied with the... Uh, with the Israelis, they're uh, they're not a strong state. They're not a weak state. They actually seem to have a somewhat competent uh, military, mostly because like they have an extremely dangerous uh, set of combination of internal and external dynamics. Syria uh, and the Saudis uh, and the Lebanese and etc. being 
next door. But I mean, the the fact that, for instance, uh, Egypt uh, was willing to uh, ally uh, with the Israelis to make peace with them did not stop a uh, Israeli-backed uh, coup. I mean, U.S.-sponsored, but sort of uh, Israeli um, complicity uh, in a pure attempt to destabilize the uh, the government. Like, the, the Muslim Brotherhood um, figure who was then elected, like, you know, the concern, quote-unquote, was that he was going to be somewhat more anti-Israel. But the point was to destabilize and weaken the country so that when the inevitable counter coup happened, they just had less to deal with. So, I mean, that's, that's like the, that's been the Israeli pattern since uh, the early eighties, at least is to have weak and destabilized and war torn uh, neighbors. Like in other words, like they're, they're not good neighbors. They're the guy who like gets drunk and takes a shit in your yard at 1am. Sounds like Mexico. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, just, just like slashes your tires just because like, Hey, fuck you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but Yeah. So, I mean, this, I don't think anyone's under any illusions that, like, yeah, nobody's under any illusions that Israel is a positive force in its neighborhood. Um, the So, like, the claim always devolves into, well, you have to understand we're very oppressed and all these Arabs want to throw us into the sea and blow up these pizza parlors and... Uh, basically, like, we're surrounded by animals, so, of course, we put them in cages. I remember and, when, the, after 9-11, the argument for the alliance with Israel, and especially during the Iraq run buildup, was that it was the only democracy in the Middle East, they're our greatest ally, and we are draining the swamp of the region of Islamic fundamentalism. Like, those three yeah, things. And none of that the, the interesting anything. thing about that is it's a more... It's a, it's a moral claim masquerading as a political, as a claim yes. based on political interests. Yes. It's, it really no, didn't make any sense to me at the time, even. Yeah, it was because like, there's what? No, like, I don't care if they're no a democracy. Like, reason <laughs> that, let's say that that was even true. It doesn't actually mean anything because there's no reason why. I mean, democracies, for example, could easily go to war with each other. <laughs> There's there's no necessary alliance because you share a, a theoretical form of government. Yeah. yeah. The and that's like an explicit realist claim like form of government does not matter really. Like they're not blind to the fact that oh well if you have something like you have an Islamic revolution that could cause you to become more warlike in the short term because of your domestic political situation. But their claim is that like long-run dynamics are driven by actual um, sort of exterior state interests, not like you, they completely reject things like the McDonald's thesis that, oh, two countries that have had McDonald's uh, have never fought a war, which incidentally has not been true since like 1998 or so. Yeah. And And as the... The leftists, the the Western and American leftists, would be quick to point out, uh, America, the American empire's client states, or you know regional 
puppets or allies, however you want to put it, uh, the most effective ones throughout the Cold War were largely autocracies or military dictatorships. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the role of Israel, just to hammer home the point, in sponsoring Islamic fundamentalism is well-documented at this point. So it's it's just wrong to say it's objectively wrong as a matter of fact to say that Israel fights quote-unquote Islamic terrorism. It's also wrong as a matter of objective fact to claim that quote-unquote Islamic fundamentalism targets Israel. Like Al-Qaeda has never attacked Israel. That's not their priority. That's not a strategic target of them. Most of the terrorism of the like 70s through 90s directed at Israel was just straight up Arab nationalism or like, fuck you, you killed my dad type revenge attacks. Like, I mean, the Palestinians have ample reasons to be angry at the Israelis. It's not like if suddenly, you know, Muhammad descended out of the sky and said, actually, my bad guys, like you're all Christians now that like the problem would go away. I, so there were some there were some Zogshill critics who actually attacked them for failing to talk about the Munich uh, killings. <laughs> oh man! Hey, I, I saw mean, the movies, and that could why have... would you though? Like that, it's like I guess the idea is that you're supposed to mention every single slight against them. Yeah, exactly. You know, I just learned this. I mean, in. Nick was saying, you know, the most six million, and, and he's right. I mean, there have been atrocities and deaths constantly throughout history. I just learned uh, that during the uh, creation of Bangladesh, okay, it used to be part of Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani military didn't like these people trying to go their own own way, and he issued an order to kill three million of them and then after that they will see who's boss basically is what he was saying and the army did it they killed three million bangladeshis okay and that, yeah, this we, is not to like get to like all the other murders and, and killings the 20th century is a charnel house yeah, yeah the idea that anybody has like a unique claim in the fucking second world war that ah but this thing was the worst thing is egotistical beyond belief yeah well it makes sense when you have a narcissistic uh, uh ego cult that your desert tribe has worshipped for 2500 years yeah i mean we, we want to make sure that we actually get through because i know um some people are running on uh on batteries here uh, but we want to get into some of the more um sort of specific operational uh dynamics here like when they start talking about the actual, um, uh, we probably don't need to go into the particular case studies that they discuss. Like the run up to the Iraq war definitely should be its own show. Um, the stuff that they have about Syria and Iran has been completely superseded by present uh, events. But when they talk about the concrete way that it operates um, in uh, particularly in the U.S. Congress, um, it describes this sort of like interlocking uh, network of organizations um, and networks of networks of organizations kind of around a few 
uh, key nodes of these um, extremely wealthy uh, Jewish donors. And before you get into that, Hank, another thing I want to mention that will also deserve to be its own show, but I think it's important to say that they did address it, is the nuclear weapons program and Demona and uh, the Israeli threat to the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Right. I mean, that's when we say Israel is destabilizing, that's one of the major, major reasons that it actually is like a strategic threat to peace. You cannot have, you, you cannot have like a stable multipolar uh, region where you have one state that has nuclear weapons and is trying to destabilize all of its neighbors. That's that's like, you know, people talk about, oh, what if Iran got a nuclear weapon? Then they could destabilize all of their neighbors and it would be impossible to destroy them. Like that that exists now. That the name for that thing is Israel. Like <laughs> the the fact that they possess nuclear weapons as a uh, deterrent and because of their lack of strategic depth like that's the key thing if they were you know the size of uh, something like Iran or Egypt and they had some strategic depth then like it would be possible to fight a conventional war beat them decisively like curtail their ambitions and uh, have sort of a outcome that was more peaceful in expectation than before. But because Israel has zero strategic depth, they, I mean, they're like three miles wide at their narrowest point on paper, although given that the fact that they control uh, half the West Bank, um, you know, it's a little bit wider, but still, it's like the size of Long Island. You can jog, you can bicycle from one side to the other of the country. Yes, uh, they recently got the Golan Heights, I believe, officially now. Yeah, but uh, right. Yes, so I agree with you. what the, this the means of, is that uh, it's impossible to actually threaten them and beat them conventionally in a way that does not risk them just like straight up nuking you. Like if you beat their armies and you advance to their borders, like they will nuke you. Because like the altern like the game theoretical alternative for them is just to like wait and see if you walk the extra twenty miles to get to their capital. So I mean like it would be safer, like safer for the world if they either explicitly controlled, like had actual sovereignty over the surrounding like 500 miles or whatever, you know, the, the biblical from the Euphrates to the Nile or whatever, or if alternatively they were denuded of their nuclear weapons and were no longer holding the rest of the region hostage to be able to destabilize their neighbors with impunity. Right now, this is like the worst of all possible worlds. <clears throat> But, or if they were destroyed. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's the unfortunate like other other option is like if it's impossible to live with these guys. I mean this is why Iran, like any sane country in the region, would want a nuclear deterrent to deter the nuclear power that's trying to destabilize them. And like it's that's true. 
it's true of Zion. This same principle is true of Zionism as a whole. It's something that we did discuss uh, when we were talking. We did an episode on some, something about the origins of Zionism. And I mentioned that you had many, you know, European anti-Semites who were supportive of the Zionist project. Unfortunately, the twist that no one really saw coming was that you ended up with the most, the worst of both worlds, where you still had the fifth column diaspora uh, spreading the disease in your own countries, while you also had the state, with, and then the two mutually reinforce each other. Right, right. I mean, it's a, it's a toxic dynamic for everybody involved. Mearsheimer and Walt sort of like they. They touch on the very symptomatic uh, aspects of this, but they don't they don't deal with the underlying disease at all, like either on a strategic level, um, which is sort of their forte. And I, I haven't read absolutely everything else that they've published. So it's possible that that being in their wheelhouse, they might have written something else about um, Israel's sort of position in that region. But I've I've completely come around to the uh, the conclusion that from like a realist foreign policy perspective, uh, you know Israel is a uh, the, the famous drop. Um, Israel must learn to uh, must learn to be at peace with its neighbors. Yeah, and the to continue in pathological terms, that's the interesting thing about the lobby itself is the lobby is only the latest expression, as I mentioned earlier, it's only the latest expression of Jewish power. There are much many preconditions that were necessary in order for this to come about at all, and it's, again, where they're weakest in their ability to address that. So the way that this plays out in practice, they, they list at least a dozen um, organizations at varying uh, levels of uh, prominence. Um, the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, the Zionist Organization of America, APAC, the American Public, uh, American Israel Public Action, or uh, PAC, whatever PAC stands for, although they're not legally a PAC, of course. No, they're but, not a PAC, but they it's a public affairs committee. It's a, right. uh, um, Israeli public affairs committee, which I should add is the second largest registered lobby uh, behind the AARP. Yeah. Uh, the ADL, the uh, American or Anti-Defamation League, of course, um, the World Jewish Congress. And then you have uh, a number of people who constitute uh, sort of sources of funds so large that they form organizations unto themselves. People like uh, Les Wexner, um, who is uh, rapidly getting uh, involved in the uh, the Epstein affair, um, Sheldon Adelson, um, a number of others, um, but they discuss the sort of uh, uh, the pattern of operation, I guess, um, of these groups in that they, um, they collude very heavily. They all have slightly different packs, but they're all generally on the same page. They go out of their way to um, silence uh, internal dissent in terms of marginalizing any um, prospective uh, Jewish anti-Zionist uh, organization. The closest thing that exists is J Street. But that's not really anti-Zionist in any real term. Um, they're just sort of like, well, we'll feel guilty about the stuff that we're advocating, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the obvious like, number one uh, contributors is money. Like 
APAC uh, does not uh, themselves uh, donate. They're not legally a political action committee. They're a public affairs committee. Um, so what they do is merely the vetting of candidates, the distribution of talking points, making sure that you're on the same page, and then handing out the Rolodex of the people who actually do contribute money. The amount of philanthropy um, that's sort of organized and distributed throughout the, the Jewish community in the U.S. dwarfs uh, most other um, organizations uh, that, or uh, sort of manners of organizations that you could talk about. Um, the <laughs> there's a number of uh, a damning um, quotes in here and some uh, intercepted uh, uh, radio communications about exactly the extent to which they're able to exert pressure via the employment of funds. Um, but I think that really only scratches the surface because where uh, this starts to get interesting uh, is <laughs> when they start talking about the uh, the staffing uh, of these various offices uh, and organizations, think tanks, uh, and uh, places in academia. Um, the This is something that they don't get into, but I thought this was interesting because it's the closest that they actually get to uh, calling it like a conspiracy or a cabal is when they talk about, I'm trying to find the quote here now, congressional staffers are at, a, at the center of the legislative process, registering the positions of outside interest groups and parsing different policy options for their bosses. And Morris Amate, former head of APAC, once noted, there's a lot of guys at the working level up there on Capitol Hill who happen to be Jewish, who are willing to look at these certain issues in terms of their Jewishness and these are all guys who are in a position to make the decision in these areas for these senators. And you can get an awful lot done just at the staff level. So in other words, like there's an expression in, in Washington, personnel drives policy. And when you have organized networks that are exchanging favors and jobs and suggesting people for positions, and in the case of sufficiently large donors, even being like, hey, you know, here's a check for a couple million dollars. And I've got this this guy. He's a real go getter. Um, this kid would be great, uh, great on your staff. Or, uh, you know, if you should hear about any opportunities for maybe not on your staff, but you know, maybe you could suggest a friend like it's very easy to develop these uh, pervasive uh, networks that are very uh, subterranean in scope and pass information not through these uh, good old wholesome all-American channels that they're clear to emphasize uh, are what makes it not a conspiracy but through like you know actual sub-rasa uh, influence networks and combining that with what we know is starting to come out about why people like Dennis Hassert uh, achieved positions of pro political prominence like the whole thing starts to uh, starts to take on the air of maybe uh, less uh, less employment of staffers and more the absorption of uh, of infiltrators uh, into your uh, your body politic. As I mentioned before, I did want to dedicate this episode to Justin Raimondo, who sadly passed away recently. Justin was a big influence on me, especially when I was younger, and. I used to read his columns all the time, and I was, of all the people, as, you know, we get older, we see this happen, all the people who deserve to die keep on walking the earth, and the people who are of some value, sadly, have to take their leave, and so 
I would like to read just very briefly a poem that I know that Justin Raimondo was fond of, and that is by the great American poet Robertson Jeffers. So, <clears throat> while this America settles in the mold of its vulgarity, heavily thickening to empire and protest, only a bubble in the molten mass pops and sighs out and the mass hardens. I sadly smilingly remember that the flower fades to make fruit, the fruit rots to make earth. Out of the mother and through the spring excellences, ripeness and decadence and home to the mother. You making haste, haste on decay, not blameworthy, life is good, be it stubbornly long or suddenly, a mortal splendor. Meteors are not needed less than mountains, shine, perishing republic. But for my children, I would have them keep their distance from the thickening center, corruption. Never has been compulsory. When the cities lie at the monster's feet, there are left the mountains. And boys be in nothing so moderate as in love of man, a clever servant, insufferable master. There is the trap that catches noblest spirits, that caught, they say, God, when he walked on the earth. <laughs> 